Upwork has the world's largest network of independent professionals. Let me just close this real quick. So if you need a back-end developer, a UI designer, or a project manager for six days or six months, Upwork is how. Hey, I have this room booked at noon. I'm just wrapping up here. Upwork professionals have the flexibility and capability to work from anywhere. Yeah, it's 1201. Okay, it's all yours. Which is nice if you're already low on conference rooms. Plus, they're proven, rated, and reviewed. When you need in-demand talent on demand, Upwork is how. Welcome to Editor's Picks. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor of The Economist, and it's Thursday the 26th of December 2019. In this special show, we'll hear some of the long reads from our holiday double issue of The Economist. First, few tourists or locals visit Yeovil in Johannesburg. They're missing out. Next, what happens when you take thousands of working-class Londoners and rehome them in the middle of nowhere? And finally, the long and tangled history of California's eucalyptus trees. With a subscription, you can listen to all of what we do, so please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. First up, hard times in the most diverse district in Africa. One morning in October... Sansa Sandili zigs and zags his way through Yeovil Market. He hollers at Ghanaian seamstresses, waves at Nigerian apothecaries and sniffs at the stews bubbling in front of Zimbabwean cooks. Finally, he finds what, or rather who, he is looking for. Lydia Luiki, the Congolese Queen of Cassava. Miss Luiki sits on a small wooden stool. Between her feet is a sack of green leaves from the shrubby cassava tree, which came in from Mozambique this morning. She processes it with three other Congolese women, who nimbly wash, pluck, blend and pack the leaves. The resulting mulch is sold for 10 rand, or 60 cents, per bag. Mr Sandili has tried other cassava sellers, but their produce is far inferior to that of the Congolese queen. Hers is a staple of the dinner club he hosts five days a week in Yeovil, a district in central Johannesburg which is home to 20,000 people from at least 30 African countries. His cassava three ways, Angolan, Congolese and Mozambican, is one of a dozen dishes that mix the cuisines of the area's diasporas. The 44-year-old chef grew up in Soweto, a township on the outskirts of Johannesburg. During the 1970s and 1980s, it was the wellspring of resistance to apartheid, South Africa's brutal system of white rule. It was also a place of dry sandwiches, recalls Mr Sandili. By contrast, Yeovil, to which he moved in 1994, the year of Nelson Mandela's election, was a cornucopia of flavour. It still is. Few tourists come to Yeovil, nor do many residents of the rest of Johannesburg. And though its high crime rate might make the choice seem sensible, they are missing out. The diverse tastes that inspire Mr Sandili reflect a fascinating present and past. Once a place where Europeans washed up, today most of its residents are from other African countries. No other place on the continent has so many different communities in such proximity. And for all its violence and poverty, it remains a place of sanctuary. Yeovil, says Mr Sandili, 
is still the headquarters for people who know what it means to be the other. Johannesburg is a city built on mining and migrants. A few years after the first big discovery of gold in 1886, Thomas Yeo Shawell, a developer from Yeovil, England, bought a plot of land to the north of the main seam and named it after his hometown and himself. He touted it to the rich as an oasis away from the dirt, dust and noise. In the end, Yeovil proved still too close to the mines for the newly moneyed. But it became popular with migrants, many of them Jews from Eastern Europe. In the decades after the Second World War, when the South African economy boomed, new migrants from authoritarian and communist Europe flocked to Yeovil. The streets were dotted with vendors selling falafel and German-style sausages, Italian cafes and Greek tavernas. Christina Gubrich was born in Yeovil in 1973. Her parents were ethnic Hungarians from Yugoslavia who had paid for the move by smuggling cigarettes and tights. Ms. Gubrich recalls a childhood buying shawarma and wurst and watching her father play chess in cafes. She observes that by moving from Josip Broz Tito's Yugoslavia to apartheid South Africa, her parents swapped one form of oppression for another. But in Yeovil, oppression was frequently discussed and often resisted. The area has always had a radical streak. Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi both lived there briefly. It was home to many members of the South African Communist Party. Diasporas today keep up the area's tradition of politicking. When you see Congolese in Yeovil, they're probably discussing politics, smiles Gila Botaka, a security guard. In the late 1970s and 1980s, Yeovil stood out amid the starched wickedness of apartheid. Gay-friendly clubs such as Casablanca sprang up. Under the Group Areas Act, first passed in 1950, South Africans of different skin colour were segregated, with non-whites forcibly removed to peripheral townships. But in Yeovil, authorities sometimes turned a blind eye to greying. There was probably more mixing in the area than anywhere else in the country. The mixing increased as apartheid neared its end. The Group Areas Act was repealed in 1991. Exiled members of the African National Congress, or ANC, the party of Mandela, returned home. Progressive South Africans of all colours imagined what a democratic version of their country would be like. A lot of that dreaming, and a lot of drinking, went on in Yeovil. You left white South Africa at the door when you arrived in Yeovil, remembers Loris Tates, who grew up in Benoni, an affluent white town outside Johannesburg. You left all the conformity, the evil dullness of it all. She recalls a heady time of parties and politics. It was a coming of age for a lot of people, the first hint of what a new South Africa might be. Some of Mr Sandili's recollections of that time seem still to be glimpsed through a hedonistic fug. Did he really see Paul Simon on stage with Tabo Mbeki at a jazz club? Was he actually sent to help Mick Jagger find some really nice stuff? Either way, Yeovil was where he first saw blacks and whites mixing together, and, just as unusual, black people drinking Chardonnay. Here were the smart blacks, who had been suppressed and squandered under apartheid. Here, he continues, We were free. Looking back, though, Mr Sandili also sees the eve of democracy as a missed opportunity. We could have created an alternative suburb in Yeovil. 
we could have all coexisted. It is hardly a feeling unique to the area. A quarter of a century after the end of apartheid, many all over South Africa feel that the country has squandered its democratic dividend. But the Yeovil residents who lived through the heady days of the early 1990s feel an especially acute sense of regret. In 1991, Yeovil was 79% white. By 1998, it was more than 84% black. It's like I've lived in two different countries, says Gabriela Zinsky, one of the few white South African residents to have stayed. But Yeovil's story was not just one of white flight. It saw black flight too. The ANC cadres who had partied and plotted in Yeovil got government jobs. Many moved to Pretoria, the administrative capital. In the late 1990s and 2000s, the South African middle classes were replaced in Yeovil by migrants from the rest of Africa. Under Mandela, South Africa welcomed refugees. Under his successors, that was coupled with a spotty approach to illegal immigration. The army was removed from border patrols in 2004, replaced by a small, ineffective police contingent. One of the largest communities in Yeovil is from the Democratic Republic of Congo. A former synagogue has become the Congolese Mall, complete with hair salons, Pentecostal churches and a courier service. Much cheaper than FedEx, says the owner. The Congolese are hard to miss. Their elegant clothes are a sign of sapology, an elegant protest against stifling poverty that began in the dictatorship of Joseph Mobutu, who banned Western clothes. Mr Botaka, the politically active security guard, insists he is dressed casually, while sporting a diamante earring and a tuxedo. But if the Congolese stand out, they know they are but one group among many. I didn't travel before coming to South Africa, says Joris Bondo, who moved to Johannesburg in 1996 from Congo. But in Yeovil, I travel across Africa every day. The smell of frankincense burning in coffee shops is testament to the number of Ethiopians who have left behind ethnic conflict too. Zimbabweans are targeted by multiple adverts offering low-cost remittance transfers back home. Smaller communities from West African countries such as Liberia and Sierra Leone have also found a haven in Yeovil. Many are fleeing civil strife. Some are escaping a more pervasive persecution. I'm gay, says Richard from Ghana, who came to Yeovil in 2003 and never left. I'm not very welcome back home. I would have had to have led my whole life for other people. As a lie. Most migrants to Yeovil, like newcomers anywhere, start by seeking out compatriots. But over time there is cross-pollination. Laie Kamara from Liberia is dating a Zimbabwean woman, whose level of education impressed him. At a local primary school, a Zimbabwean and a Cameroonian couple explain that their son speaks Lingala in the playground so he can fit in with Congolese pupils. Food, like education, is a catalyst for mixing. Blessings Café, one of the many diners in Yeovil, is manned by Lucky Olabode, a former forklift truck driver from Delta State in Nigeria. He has learned to cook pap, maize, meat and stew for his Southern African clientele, as well as traditional fare such as pepper soup and jollof rice for Nigerians. 
Sharing meals is one reason why we have a strong community here, he says. It is a sentiment that Mr Sandili is trying to foster with his own dinner club. On a recent visit, your correspondent sampled the famous cassava three ways, jollof rice, Senegalese style, Nigerian cow leg, Ethiopian ladyfingers, Mozambican pickles smeared on steamed fish, pumpkin dishes galore, poached guavas and fried maguinha, doughnuts. All of it was washed down with a savage blend of Egyptian arak and Ghanaian herbal bitters. When Mr Sandili first moved to Yeovil, he worked as a radio journalist. He would also act as a fixer, doing odd jobs. The cooking came later, as a way of showing that Yeovil still had much to offer. I embraced multi-African food, he explains. I don't want to go to Melville, a mostly white hipster suburb, for a pizza. Fuck it. Yet Mr Sandili is the first to recognise that Yeovil is far from a cosmopolitan paradise. Yeovil is the pan-Africanism of the streets, he argues. If there is a shared identity, it is one born of mutual hustle rather than any kind of ideology. More than 70% of workers in Yeovil earn less than 6,400 rand. That's $432 per month. Here in Yeovil, I think we are all friends. The reason for any problem is hardship, says Mr Olabode, the Nigerian chef. His 3,000 rand rent is three quarters of his monthly salary. Many migrants use Yeovil as a starter suburb before moving out of the city, in the same way as white Europeans once did. But saving is hard when rent takes up most of your pay. Not that one gets a lot for the money. The demand for accommodation is so high that two-bedroom flats can rake in more than 20,000 rand per month, about the same as more salubrious parts of Johannesburg. In this case, though, the flats may have ten or more residents. Opposite the Yeovil Market, a brick wall is festooned with signs looking for a woman to share a bed or a man to share a sitting room. Nor does the South African state make it easy for Yeovil residents. A common complaint is sluggishness in processing asylum claims. Mr Bondo has still not been formally classified as a refugee, which would make it easier to work, despite having arrived from Congo 23 years ago. He has had to renew his status as an asylum seeker more than 40 times. The city government has long neglected the area, perhaps because most foreigners cannot vote. It is more likely to sweep informal traders off the pavements than sweep litter off the streets. That makes enterprise hard for people who often have no other way to make money. A Zimbabwean woman flogging chunks of cabbage by the roadside explains that she would like to sell higher-value goods, but cannot risk the confiscation of more expensive stock. And it is not just the state that is hostile. In September, cities including Johannesburg saw spasms of xenophobic attacks on foreign-owned shops and property. Such was the violence that a Nigerian airline sent a plane for dozens of citizens to leave the country. In Yeovil, because of the safety of numbers, there were relatively few attacks. When vigilantes got close, warnings were passed in person and on WhatsApp. 
the Zulus are coming, was a common message. But the violence has still caused a sense of unease among residents. Richard from Ghana says South Africans' Afrophobia stems from their own plight, though that is no excuse. Don't blame me for you not getting a job. For Mr Sandili, the giant elephant in the room is the way we Africans treat each other. Even though xenophobic attacks are rare in Yeovil, crime is not. There were 27 murders in 2018, and the tally was higher in 2019. Every night before his supper club opens, he ensures the toilets are washed, then locked. Otherwise they are spoiled and items are stolen. We are left here as Africans, robbing each other and hating each other. Like many residents, he has a passionate ambivalence for Yeovil. He loves what it ought to represent, but laments the day-to-day reality. It is not unlike his feelings towards contemporary South Africa as a whole. Great in theory, less so in practice. For now, the remembrance of the heady idealism of the early 1990s, the joy of a shared meal and the need to make a living keep the plates coming. I'm staying here and doing my table, says Mr Sandili, because my memory is my weapon. And I remember that we used to live nicely here. Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Next, meeting the Cockneys of Thetford. Many of the headstones in Thetford's cemetery are modest, dearly beloved, or in loving memory they begin, before stating the bare facts, name, spouse, birth, death. Such stones tend to mark the graves of people born in or around this small Norfolk town, roughly halfway between Cambridge and Norwich in eastern England. A quiet, understated sort, buried in simple coffins. They pass without much fuss, says Lydia Turner, who runs a funeral parlour nearby. There is another kind of headstone in Thetford Cemetery, which is beginning to outnumber the modest variety. This is made of shiny black granite. It contains so many effusive gold-lettered words that they sometimes spill onto the back of the stone. Mum, seldom mother, was always there when you needed her. Dad was a king. Nan will be missed forever. The headstones have lots of images, not just angels, but dartboards, fancy cars, and the logos of Chelsea and Tottenham Hotspur football clubs. Underground, the coffins have brass handles. Many arrived at the cemetery in carriages filled with flowers, pulled by beautiful horses. These are the graves of working-class Cockneys who left London half a century ago and made new homes in a town in the middle of nowhere. As they die and are buried, so their descendants live. 
Although Thetford is 110 kilometres, that's 70 miles from St Mary Le Beau in London, the centre of the Cockney heartland, according to Cockneys, many of its 25,000 inhabitants belong fully to that flashy, gravel-accented tribe. In many ways, Thetford resembles a 50-year-old East End transported to the flat rural landscape of East Anglia. Frozen in time and overlooked by outsiders, it is a bit like the mythical Scottish village of Brigadoon. This makes it an excellent place to go if you want to understand a crucial figure in modern society and politics, the white, southern, working-class Brexiteer. The seat of the bishops of East Anglia in the Middle Ages, by the early 20th century, Thetford was in a sorry state. It had hitched its fortunes to a single company, Charles Burrell and Sons, which made steam-powered traction engines. The rise of the internal combustion engine killed it. Thetford was barely able to keep its population from falling below 5,000. In 1957, the town's leaders decided to do something drastic. The British government was trying to push factories and workers out of London. Thetford offered to take so many that its population would at least triple. Using money from London County Council, it began to build social housing for people known then and now as overspill. Factories rose on industrial estates, separated from the houses by strips of woodland. The Londoners loved their new homes, which were larger than their digs in the capital and had private indoor toilets. And some of the locals were pleased to see them. There was a bit more talent, remembers Theresa Mead, who married a Londoner. Unfortunately, the work was a letdown. Jobs were easy enough to find. In 1964, there were said to be just 20 unemployed people in the whole town. The problem was the pay, especially for men. In 1971, Malcolm Mosley, a social scientist, conducted hundreds of interviews in Thetford. Although 57% of the people he spoke to described their houses as very good, just 4% said the same of men's wages. The migrants had chosen quality of life and made themselves poorer. And there was no getting away from it. The new settlers were a loud, leery bunch. Danny Jeffrey, who moved from East London to work at Jay's, a maker of cleaning products, eventually stopped drinking in the Londoners' pubs because of all the fights. Stuart Wright, a councillor from a Norfolk family, says that some of the new arrivals dug up his grandfather's potatoes. When challenged, they were affronted. Spuds just grow naturally, don't they? At first, the new settlers went back to London by coach, every month or so, to visit their relatives. As they settled down, the trips became less frequent, but they did not really blend into the quiet Norfolk life. After six decades, they still have not. Instead, they boiled down the working-class London culture they had brought with them into a concentrated broth. Whether they came from East, South, West or North London, they adopted the East End funeral. Many still shun Norwich City, the local Premier League team, in favour of London clubs, some of which, like Queen's Park Rangers, are no better than Norwich. Above all, you can hear Old London in their voices. 
Young working-class Londoners of all races now speak a dialect known as Multicultural London English, or MLE, which mixes Cockney words and sounds with Caribbean and South Asian ones, stirring in a few inventions of its own. Popular culture helps it spread. Grime stars such as Dizzy Rascal and Stormzy rap in and speak MLE. But on the council estates that ring Thetford, you hear one of MLE's ingredients in its pure form. The town's name begins with an F sound and has a glottal stop in the middle. A Thetford poet could rhyme arrow with Mo Farah. Oi oi is fine as a greeting. To tell someone off, you give them grief. People in other parts of southeast England, such as Essex, speak similarly. But there is something peculiarly urban and old-fashioned about Thetford Cockney. Your correspondent grew up in North London in the 1970s. No current accent reminds him so strongly of his childhood as the Thetford one. Susan Fox, who studies English speech at the University of Bern in Switzerland, suggests that the authentic Cockney voice may have endured in Thetford because Londoners overwhelmed the locals, then remained dominant. In Milton Keynes, a new town established not much later, you hear nothing of the kind, but in Milton Keynes, Londoners were only one incoming group among many. Another possibility is that speech reflects aspiration, as well as history and geography and Thetford has remained intensely working class. In 2011, when the last census was conducted, manufacturing was by far the largest industry, employing 24% of the town's workers, compared with 8% in Britain as a whole. Many of those factory jobs are unskilled or semi-skilled. One Thetford firm that employs skilled engineers is Warren Services, which makes things like props for pop concerts. Richard Bridgman, the founder, spends half an hour walking the factory floor, trying to find a worker who moved from London or is descended from someone who did. He fails. His engineers all seem to come from Norfolk families or from somewhere other than the capital. Something else arrived with the Londoners, an attitude to family and labour that seemed exotic in mid-20th century Norfolk. In April 1959... The Thetford and Watton Times reported that 40 or so housewives from London had travelled to Thetford to see their almost finished homes and examine the factory in which the husbands will soon be working. When the factories opened, though, London women rushed in. It was part of their culture. As early as 1961, 37% of workers in London were female. They did not just work in offices, hospitals and shops. A quarter of metal manufacturing jobs in the capital were taken by women. The married couples who moved to Thetford often both worked, alternating shifts so that one partner could watch the children. Occasionally it was the wives who took jobs in Thetford factories and their husbands who came along. That was true for Brenda Cannam, now Thetford's mayor, who moved from East London to work in a factory that made insulated thermos flasks. I got married at 16, and I've always worked, she says. Just as London's accent has changed, leaving the Cockney Thetfordians with an antique, so has London's work culture. 
Since the 1970s, the capital has gone from having the highest rate of female employment in Britain to the lowest rate. Two sorts of British women are less likely to do paid work, immigrants from countries where it is frowned upon, and the wives of extremely wealthy men. London now has lots of both. Thetford also resembles 1970s London in a less fortunate way. State schools in London used to be terrible. A government survey in 1978-79 to found that 24% of London children left school with no qualifications, not even a certificate of secondary education. The national figure was 14%. The situation had become so dismal that some universities required lower exam marks from applicants who attended inner London state schools. London state schools now post better exam results than schools in any other region of England and Wales, those immigrants again. But Thetford state schools look like those of the capital half a century ago. In 2019, the average 16-year-old in every one of London's 32 boroughs got better exam results than the average pupil at Thetford's only state secondary school. There could be many reasons. There is a private school in the town and higher-achieving state schools nearby, all of which may cream off the ambitious. But one of the reasons appears to be social pressure. One Thetford woman says that when her daughter won a scholarship to the private school, she turned it down. She could not face walking through her estate in a private school uniform. Culture is not just something you have. It is also something you do. If they had wanted to, the Londoners who moved to Thetford could have adopted local habits. They could have switched allegiance to Norwich City. They could have settled for modest funerals. Although the migrants were probably stuck with their speech patterns, their descendants could have dropped the Cockney dialect. Instead, many speak it more strongly than their parents do. Frankie Dean has done more than most people to define and shape Thetford culture. He grew up in the town as the son of migrants from North and West London. He now lives a few doors down from the very first council house built for a London migrant. When not working for British Telecom, Mr Dean is a rapper known as Franco Fraze. He raps about ordinary things such as a checked shirt he really likes and the agony of supporting the England football team. The video for one of his songs, Hand Me Downs, shows him going out to buy a pint of milk. Oi Oi is a hymn to Thetford council estate life with all the trimmings, white trainers, added ass threads, boxing gloves, satellite dish. It is hard to rap in Cockney, which is less precise and percussive than MLE, but Mr Dean is determined to sound different from other rappers. He wants to represent his hometown, of which he is immensely proud. He also wants to remind Londoners of a world that they have lost. When I go to London, it's like I'm bringing their culture back to them, he says. His Cockney accent is authentic, but it is also a badge and a sales pitch. Working-class ex-Londoners often feel that they are keeping up old urban traditions, like those described and romanticised in Peter Wilmot and Michael Young's influential 1957 study, Family and Kinship in East London. 
For Miss Canham, a key aspect of East End life was not locking your door. By the time she left, that had become impossible in London, but it could be done in Thetford. She describes the estate where she lives as a bit of the old London, especially in summer when impromptu ball games break out and toddlers run around in loose nappies. Sometimes these sentiments come across as resentment and despair about modern London, which has changed staggeringly since the migrants left it for Thetford, becoming both richer and less white. Local feelings about the capital are intertwined with negative feelings about immigration and the European Union. In the 1990s, Portuguese immigrants began to arrive in Thetford to take jobs in packing houses and factories. Then came Eastern Europeans and half a dozen shops selling the food they love, most of which are now run by Iraqi Kurds. In the town centre, though not on the estates, English is now one language among several. In 2004, the English football team played Portugal in the European Championship. After England lost on penalties, a Portuguese pub in the middle of Thetford was attacked by irate natives. Politics began to change too. The town's working-class residents had made Thetford a Labour redoubt in a Conservative region. At the local elections in 2015, though, the nationalist United Kingdom Independence Party won the most votes in two of Thetford's four wards. A year later, the parliamentary constituency that includes Thetford voted to leave the EU by 67% to 33%. That made it keener on Brexit than nine-tenths of Britain. But Thetford does not want to be a xenophobic Little England sort of place. That would contravene another Cockney ideal, the spirit of mongrelism. Carla Barreto, who was born in Portugal, draws a distinction between immigration and diversity. The ex-Londoners are hostile to the former, but comfortable with the latter, she suggests. In May 2019, she was elected to the town council as an independent. Knocking on doors, she listened to people complain about the EU, then declare that she seemed all right. We don't get much grief these days, avers a Portuguese-speaking teenage boy who has acquired a flawless 1970s London accent. Was all of it, the factories, the estates, the cockneys, the fights, really worth it? At a meeting of the local history group in Thetford's library, Two dozen people, most of them from Norfolk families, argue that it was not. Thetford was just fine before the expansion, they say. It could have chosen a much quieter path, staying small and preserving its old buildings and shops. Over time, it might have become a pretty dormitory village for commuters to Cambridge and Norwich. Perhaps that is true. But those who love the crooked timber of humanity should be grateful that Thetford went a different way. And finally, what happens when a dream grows and then falters on foreign soil? The night of the fire, my father called us to the top of the driveway to watch the smoke plume above the eucalyptus forest. He warned us that the flames were hardly a mile away, but my siblings and I couldn't see them, so we didn't really care. 
we were too busy playing on our new front lawn, laughing as ash from the burning trees tumbled onto the windshield of our mother's Chrysler minivan. The burnt flakes fell white like a snow we had never seen before in California. Within weeks, my father had chopped down all the eucalyptus trees in our front yard. He surrounded our home, a 3,549-square-foot, five-bed, four-bath wonder, boasting a Spanish-style terracotta roof, with a moat of fire-retardant succulents and yucca. For a man like my father, who grew up in a small tract home nearby, and a woman like my mother, who had emigrated from South Korea when GDP per person was less than $200 a year, this house was a dream. And for a few years in the early 1990s, my parents lived it. They hosted dinner parties with fondue and sushi. My Korean grandmother, who lived with us, wowed the ladies from church with bowls of bibimbap and sitting-room prayer sessions that lasted so long, I used to think even Jesus must have tired of them. But in 1996 that ended. We fell out of the middle class. The California of glossy dreams is the California of palm trees, reflected in ray-bands, tall, slender, glamorous and heading right up into the sky. The California of the enlightened spirit is the California of majestic sequoias in the Sierras, sentinels older than history, icons of the environment. The real California, though, the California of immigrant dreams that break and get reborn, of lives as they turn out not as they are planned, is the California of the eucalyptus. In 1904, nearly 90 years before we played under an orange-glazed sky on the night of that fire, a man arrived in the town where I grew up, Lipomo, with a plan to make a fortune by improving the world. Theodore Lukens, twice mayor of Pasadena, travelled the 170 miles or 280 kilometres up the coast from Los Angeles County to see if a stretch of land not far from where our house later stood might be a suitable place to plant a lot of trees. Like his friend John Muir, Lukens believed that California desperately needed more forests. Since the mid-nineteenth century, forests and their loss had been the principal focus of conservationist thought in America. According to Jared Farmer, who traces the history of the eucalyptus in California in Trees in Paradise, 2013, Lukens and Muir were particularly keen on growing forests as a way to provide water, always a key to power in the state. Trees brought rain and captured fog and moisture, Without forests, the men feared the state's great cities would dry up. The forests were diminishing because people were cutting them down at an ever-increasing rate, which still seemed unable to keep up with demand. America's aspiring middle class longed for wooden houses filled with wooden appliances and to travel in trains with wooden coaches that sped over thousands of miles of rails that rested on wooden ties. As a result, there were concerns about an impending hardwood famine that America was hitting what might be called today peak wood. In 1907, a widely circulated report by the Forest Service claimed that America could run out of hardwood in just 15 years. The solution was to grow more forests, and quickly. The eucalyptus came to be seen as the tree for the job. Evergreen hardwoods native to Australia they were first brought back to Europe in the 1770s by Joseph Banks, the greatest British naturalist of the 18th century. 
1788, Charles-Louis Leretier du Bretel gave them their systematic Linnaean name, derived from the Greek roots eu for well and calyptos for covered. The covering in question is not that which the tree's fallen leaves and seed pods provide to forest floors, but the discreet cap which conceals their flower buds. Since then, by some estimates, only 100 million acres, that's 40 million hectares, of eucalyptus trees have been planted around the world. You can find them in the hills above Lisbon, in massive plantations throughout China and in the fields of India. But nowhere have they thrived more readily than in California. Nobody quite knows how they got to the state, or indeed whether it was a state when they arrived. Most accounts point to an arrival by ship from Australia sometime in the mid-19th century, when a traveller could get to San Francisco more quickly from Sydney than from New York. Horticulturalists prized them as an exotic novelty, beautiful additions to the gardens making the best of the young state's lovely climate. Medical professionals recommended their planting as a way of absorbing the noxious miasmas thought to cause malaria, an idea that may have been influenced by the tree's astringent smell. As well as these niche applications, the trees also had a broader claim on human attention, a facility that has always stood immigrants in good stead. They could thrive where others could not, and with minimal assistance. The Californian climate, not unlike that of the parts of Australia they came from, suited them well. They far outstripped the state's native species in productivity. A black oak, the eucalyptus boosters said, took 50 years to put on a foot in diameter, a white oak a century. A eucalyptus could do it in a decade. In the Pomo, Lucans thought he had found the perfect place to put this capacity to use. For thousands of years, winds off the Pacific had blown beach sand in the Pomo's direction, forming a flat-topped mesa of around 12,400 acres, which was home to scrawny oaks, scrub bush and little else. A desert waste of sand, as a local newspaper put it, that sold for extremely low prices. But Lucan's was taken by the mesa's soils, deep if poor, and cold mists. He deemed it better for eucalyptus than any other spot in California, as long as the young saplings were offered some sort of windbreak. Rows of barley worked well. It could also be reached by the railroads. In 1909, Lucans and two businessmen from Iowa put $150,000 into creating the Los Berros Forest Company and started planting 8,000 acres they had acquired at the north end of the mesa. It was both a timber business and a property venture, Land with trees was worth more than land without. In 1910, William Brintnell, who had served as the president of Drover's National Bank in Chicago for more than 30 years, paid over $20,000 for 687 acres on the Los Berros tract, which, at $30 an acre, was fetching as much as ten times what had been paid for it five years earlier. Eucalyptus promises to be great industry, announced the front page of the San Luis Obispo Daily Telegram. Later claiming that what the speculators following where Lucans had led were planting will be the largest artificial forest in the world when completed. Land on the fringes of a tiny town that had once been called worthless now brought in what the newspaper called fancy prices. 
1912, the paper told the story of George Munger, an eastern eucalyptus man who rolled into town and spent nearly $50,000 on 200 acres. The area enjoyed some of the largest property transactions the country had seen in years. An advertisement in the Omaha Sunday Bee promised that the tree's timber would produce a value of up to $5,000 an acre, $130,000 in today's dollars, in just 10 years. Hopeful investors were welcome to a free 1,600-mile trip, no obligation, at least on paper, aboard a Pullman rail car from Omaha to California to scope out eucalyptus opportunities. Some companies promised forests grown while you wait, or even the absolute security and absolute certainty of investing in land speckled with eucalypts. It wasn't just greasy salesmen buying in. Jack London, who was to become one of America's first writers of world renown, studied endless pamphlets about the promise of eucalypts. I know of no legitimate investment that will compare, he wrote. He cited his eucalyptus investments as a financial justification for an advance of a couple of thousand dollars in a letter to his publisher. I don't want to write short stories, he told him. His eucalypts were to afford him time to write meaningful novels instead of commercial bestsellers to get him out of debt to change his life. I remember standing in the shade of eucalyptus trees wishing life were different too. In 1996, 1.15 million Americans got divorced, including my parents. A wave of hospital closures, 23 in California between 1995 and 2000, shuttered the one where my mum worked as a dietitian. We started getting free lunches at school. My mum sold her van and bought a used car. She brought home McDonald's hamburgers for dinner, 29 cents on Wednesdays. We moved into a house off a dirt street which led into the depths of the forest Lucans had created. It was called Eucalyptus Road. I could see the trees across the vacant lot next door from my bedroom window. I could hear them creaking as I lay awake in bed. One afternoon, when I was about nine, looking out of the window, I decided things had to change, and that the first step was to find my grandmother, who had vanished after my parents' divorce. I looked up the number of her Baptist church in the phone book. The pastor's wife answered. I asked her, my Korean terrible, where my grandmother was. She held the line for a while as if she were thinking what to do. Then she said she couldn't tell me anything about where my grandmother had gone. I crossed the vacant lot and walked into the forest. Eucalyptus trees are messy, especially blue gums, eucalyptus globulus, the sort lucans planted in a pomo. They shed their bark like divas change clothes, dramatically, peeling back layers and switching colours for all to see. As they get old and massive, their branches and leaves twine like the columns of a Baroque cathedral. I waited under one until it got dark, ripping the leaves so they stained my hands as I prayed. I wish I could say that I prayed for my grandmother, but at that age I just prayed that I might move somewhere different. The blue gums I hid among were not meant to have grown that old. They had been planted for harvest, but the eucalyptus bubble burst in 1913 when the government's forest products laboratory concluded that blue gum wood grown in California was worthless as timber. No matter how it was cut or cured, the wood warped, cracked and twisted. Staff at the American consulate in Melbourne asked the Conservator of Forests for the state of Victoria what might be happening, 
They were told that however quickly they might put on girth, eucalypts needed decades to mature into the sort of wood that could be used for anything but pulp or mine props. Australia's lumber industry relied on old-growth forests, not green logs like those from California's young plantations. The news was devastating. The industry imploded. Lucans, almost alone, kept the faith, arguing that the bust had simply exposed honest dealers from shysters. But losing its job did not stop the eucalyptus. Ordered plantations turned into untended groves. Native species adapted to them. The monarch butterflies that find shelter in California each winter could cling more easily to their spear-shaped leaves than those of native trees. Many humans were less keen. The eucalyptus is a tree that positively relishes burning. California's native flora are quite capable of burning on their own, but adding trees that think they are candles hardly helps. In October 1991, a fire in eucalyptus-covered hills in the East Bay killed 25 people. That aside, today's conservationists tend to think that plants from elsewhere are always a bad idea. They want some areas cleansed of all trace of the eucalyptus. But most families that consider themselves Californian have spent less time in the state than the eucalypts. To the native-born Californian, a state without them is hard to imagine. The move to get rid of the trees as an invasive species has prompted a range of pro-eucalyptus demonstrations. As Chris Thomas, an ecologist, suggests in his book Inheritors of the Earth, 2017, the flourishing of the eucalyptus and its attendant butterflies in California goes some way to offset the dire prospects that some species of the genus could have faced in their ancestral home down under. We eventually found my grandmother. She had moved to a trailer park on the edge of a nearby town. Spear-shaped leaves and dried seed pods littered the asphalt outside her white trailer. It took her a few years to rebuild a relationship with my mother, but now they are closer than at any point in their lives. I don't think I will ever completely understand how my grandmother felt about what happened in Napomo or why she stayed away for so long. But I do know that sometimes the dreams that bring people across oceans and the lives they end up leading are very different, and that there are gains to be had amid disappointment. Thanks for listening to Editor's Picks. To read or listen to the whole of our holiday double issue, go to economist.com slash radio offer. Season's greetings from all of us at The Economist and best wishes for the new year. I'm Tom Standage, and in London, this is The Economist. Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, maybe even an addition on that edition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.